Have you asked yourself lately, is this it? Do you feel stuck or bored with where you're at in your career or life? Well, check this out. We're launching our new Advanced Social Skills Network Mastery Program with daily accountability, missions, and a high-valued support network headed by AJ and myself. Join us on a 12-week journey to expand your network with 17 years of experience and research, having impacted the lives of over 10,000 clients worldwide. With guaranteed results within 30 days of your money back. This isn't just a program, it's an epic adventure that will reshape the way you approach social interactions. Whether you move to a new town and are starting from scratch, or you're ready to inject new blood into your professional network, this program has got you covered. Ah, uh, but here's the catch. We're only taking 12 ready-to-go listeners for this exclusive first round. Will you be one of the chosen few? Join our active support group, immerse yourself in live sessions, and watch as your people skills skyrocket. We will guide you every step of the way, sharing insights, strategies, and real-world tactics that you won't find anywhere else. So are you ready to unlock your true potential? Don't miss out on this opportunity. Apply today at theartofcharm.com slash charmos to secure your spot in the first round of the Art of Charm Advanced Social Skills and Networking Mastery. Your epic journey awaits. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets so you have the cheat code to succeed with people. Every episode is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research in the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it, in order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, successfully recovered introvert, entrepreneur, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, rock and roller, and co-founder here at The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women all they need to know about communication, networking, and relationships. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. All right, let's kick off today's show. We're sharing our favorite strategies and secrets to growing your EQ and boosting your empathy. Empathy is a superpower for building deeper, more meaningful connections in both personal and professional relationships. And today, we're joined by Michael Ventura, the author of Applied Empathy, Paul Bloom, professor at the University of Toronto and author of Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion as well as Jeffrey Cohn, the Stanford professor and author of Belonging, The Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides, and Rick Hansen, a psychologist and senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and New York Times bestselling author, Taking in the Good. We discuss the difference between empathy and sympathy. We identify your empathy archetype to enhance your ability to connect and interact effectively with diverse personalities. We also discuss why empathy only works downward and how you can effectively cultivate empathy to boost your EQ and accelerate your career. AJ, empathy does not mean being nice. Instead, it's objective perspective taking, as Michael Ventura explains in this first clip. 
I often start by saying what, what empathy's not, right? And because everyone's got a perception of what it is. Um, so I, I like the first slide when I give a presentation on this is empathy is not about being nice. And then people are like, wait a minute, it isn't? That's what I thought, that's what I thought it's all about. Like, cause that's the colloquial way we throw it around. It's like, yeah, oh, right. you should have more empathy for that, right? Which is like shrouded, uh, shrouding a way of saying you should be nicer. Right. You shouldn't judge as much or you should relate right. more. Um, but empathy unto itself is actually in a, objective perspective taking to gain deeper understanding, right? So we want you to step out of your shoes, step out of your bias and see the world from a different perspective so that you can understand it from that vantage, right? What you do with that understanding might be to act more sympathetically. It might be to act nicer. It might be to act compassionate, right? Those are all side effects of empathy, but empathy unto itself can and should be objective because once you once you add the 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 action of sympathy or something like that you're putting you in it right, right. so that, that's that's the way i sort of look at it and Brene Brown has a, a great quote about this empathy actually fuels connection sympathy fuels disconnection hmm. because you insert yourself yes which is not what connection <laughs> is about but a lot of people don't make that connection they they think of sympathy as oh that's being nice it allows the other person to feel good that doesn't lead to connection. Empathy is just allowing yourself to feel what the other person's feeling, regardless of agreement, disagreement, right? And step outside of where you are viewing the world, which mm-hmm. is very hard for us. We're, we're very much wired to be in our own movie and have this one perspective. And Michael discusses how he found empathy to be his strength. And note, this is not taught in schools and no longer picked up naturally. I think that for me personally, empathy was always part of my DNA. I, I had a high degree of sort of a sense for what other people were going through my whole life. You know, ever since I, I can remember, I could always put myself into someone else's shoes and see what they were going through. I didn't always agree with it. And I think that's the, the conflation sometimes that happens with empathy. You don't have to agree to have empathy, right? You can, you can understand where someone else is coming from and still make your own choices about things. What's difficult about it is when we're younger, we're so internally focused. Mm-hmm. And so then we're seeing it in the social media age, which is promoting more of me, 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 me. Uh, as you get older, well, the more experience you have, you, you, you're, it's able to lend itself of how other people are feeling because you might have been there in the past. But I think in today's world, we need to find out a way for people to enjoy and then accelerate being able to use empathy and discover empathy for, for their own gains and, and, and the gains of their, the community and their friends. Interestingly, on the heels of this book coming out, one of the biggest communities that has sort of come out of the woodwork, obviously we're talking a lot with the business community and we're, you know, that's been the lion's share of feedback, but we've been getting a ton of outreach actually from educators who are saying, this is not something we're teaching at a K through 12 level yeah. in, in, the, in the world right now. And it's something that we need to have more of because these kids are becoming more and more isolated. They're living on their iPads, they're living on their devices, they're not learning the the social cues and the little subtleties that you pick up when you spend time with people. And, you know, I, we're all generally around the same age, I assume. And so, you know, like we grew up in that last era of analog before digital became oh, yeah. like an edu- like where digital, like we, I was given the first digital education in my school, right? Like I was, I don't remember what grade I was in, but at a, at a certain point, like a computer showed up, mm-hmm. you know, right? But it wasn't there at kindergarten or first grade. It, it showed up at some point. And so as a result, like we have this obligation, I think, to sort of be torchbearers for uh, a generation that is born digital to remember the humanity in uh, in the interactions we have with people. 
We couldn't agree more. Our empathy building implementation sessions are our most popular. And not only is it not being picked up naturally when you spend little time on it, you can wield it as a superpower. In fact, empathy is a muscle, as Michael explains. Absolutely. And, uh, and it, it, it is, I believe, a muscle that takes practice, right? That's like any muscle. If you don't work it, it's going to atrophy. Empathy can be treated like a muscle that the more you work with it, the more you keep it in your, your frontal mind for a period of time, the more natural and, and, and uh, embodied it starts to become. And then you don't have to presently think about it. You're just doing it. Now, Jeffrey explains how to actually develop your own empathy. Practicing empathy by understanding the other person's emotion, not reaction. I have two answers. One, coming out of Jamil Zaki's lab, a colleague here, is simply to understand that empathy is like a muscle. It does grow. You can get better at it. And he shows that believing that leads to that, that people hang in there a little bit longer to empathize when they have a growth mindset around empathy. And I do think that one of the overriding virtues in that came out of a lot of the research I reviewed is just the importance of patience. Hang in there, hang in there, especially in these difficult, fraught encounters. Often they, they will go better if you hang in there. Because as you're talking about with a relationship, people use the fact that you're hanging in there as a gauge of your level of commitment. And the more you hang in there, the more it says, I really want to learn and grow and understand. So that's one, is have a growth mindset around empathy. The second answer to how to achieve this empathy is through what's known as emotion-based empathy, or an emotion-based empathic strategy. And this was developed by a colleague of mine, Ronaldo Mendoza, but has been subsequently used in the political context. Basically, boils down to first try to understand the person's emotion. What are they feeling? And then think of an analogous time in your life when you felt that emotion too. So you're not putting yourself in the shoes of the other person. Because a lot of times when we do that, we say, yeah, I mean, if I were the same situation, I wouldn't have done that. So it actually drives people apart. (laughs) But what you do instead is you listen to the heart, not the head. What are they feeling? And often it's hurt, pain, disrespect. And then you think of a time in your own life where you've been there. And a lot of times it's not very flattering. You learn, you realize that, hey, what I did in similar situations when I was feeling that way was uncomfortably similar. Uh, But it can be used as a tool for uh, creating understanding across political lines. David Brookman and Josh Kala have this great and very hopeful study showing the power of deep canvassing to bridge divides Long story short, they go into these very conservative districts in in Florida, Miami-Dade, and they try to open people up to transphobic rights. It's just a 10-minute conversation that the residents have with a canvasser. There's a lot of elements, but there is one thing in there that I think is very important, which is this analogic perspective taking. They're trying to open up these conservative residents to the idea that people who are transgender should be supported and their rights recognized legally. And usually the residents are like, no, I don't get why anyone would be transgender. I don't like it. Like Their minds are closed, but their hearts are open. So what they do is they say, uh, they'll ask people, you know, we all know it hurts. It hurts to feel treated negatively or unfairly 
because of something about you that you can't control or because of something about who you are? When have you felt that way and what happened? And that just opens people's heart. So it's the first, it's the heart that opens. Then the head falls. And one of the residents talked about how he had PTSD after, after serving in Iraq and he couldn't find employment because he had PTSD. And so he, and that made him understand, oh, that's kind of the emotional experience that these transgender kids and individuals are, are having too. And, oh, I kind of could kind of understand a little better. And that intervention, all told, there's a few other elements, uh, is the only thing that I know of that enduringly opens people up to change on strong beliefs. And I think it begins, as Marshall Rosenberg, the pioneer of difficult conversations, put it, begin with listening to the heart. He wrote, and he had all these awful, toxic conversations with people, racist, uh, xenophobes, and he just had this remark. It's really kind of stuck with me. He's like, you know, I just find life a lot much, a much more enjoyable if I listen to what's going on in people's hearts and don't really give too much credence to what's going on in their heads. I find that I understand the universality of who we are better when I think about and try to empathize with what's in their heart. Paul Bloom joins us to discuss how empathy is a tool of a good person and a psychopath. Sympathy is sort of a very old school term from the 1700s, from Adam Smith and David Hume. And they use it to mean what we now mean as empathy. So if I was writing this book in 1780, I'd call it, again, sympathy. Right now, we use the term sympathy in sort of a narrower sense to refer to an emotional response to other people's suffering. So I feel a lot of sympathy for you if something bad happens. I don't like using the term as a synonym for empathy because it has a different meaning. For instance, empathy could refer to positive empathic responses. You're having your time of your life. I share your pleasure. Sympathy typically is only negative. Now, the other distinction you mentioned between empathy, what I'm talking about, and sort of cognitive empathy is super important. So there's another sense of empathy, cognitive empathy. And again, forget about the terminology. Just keep in mind, these are interestingly different things. Cognitive empathy is the ability to read other people's minds, not through telepathy, but through their facial expressions and what they say and what they do. And it's an extraordinarily powerful skill. My ability to make your life better, to understand you, to help you better, rests critically on my ability to understand what you want, what you need, what you're thinking, what will hurt you. On the other hand, cognitive empathy isn't good and it isn't bad. It's amoral. Some people just call it social intelligence. And I like that phrase because it's not hard to see why intelligence is not a force for good. It's not a force for bad. It's a tool for whatever you want to use it for. So if I want to make your life much better because I care for you, knowing what you want, knowing how you tick is great. On the other hand, suppose I want to make your life much worse because I'm a bully or I'm a psychopath or I'm a con man or I'm a torturer. Knowing how you tick is great. Cognitive empathy is the tool of the good person and it's also the tool of the psychopath. Understanding there are different types of empathy helps to understand why they are important to strengthen. Michael Ventura tells us a story about how he made a new friend later in life and how it happened, not through small talk, but through sharing more intimately, also introduces the idea of empathy archetypes. Absolutely. And the, the trust that 
comes along with that is something that is so uh, formative in a relationship, even a, a late in life relationship. You know, I, I have a, a personal anecdote, but I, I made a new friend uh, a few months ago who he actually told me he's like, I, I didn't think at, at 45 years old I'd be making new friends because it's just like that's one of the things that people tell you. Um, and he said, and I think the reason why we became friends is because you you made me feel comfortable trusting you early on because you didn't like kind of jam friendship into it. Neither one of us was like, you know, on Craigslist looking for new friends, right? We just like, we happened to have some good conversations and one thing led to another and we, and we started to share sort of deep stuff fast, right? And that's what, that's what happens when you do that. And, um, and, you know, we've, we've developed these archetypes that, uh, that we use within our process, right? There are seven different archetypes for, uh, how one might, uh, engender a sense of empathy with someone else. And, my own being aware of where my strengths and weaknesses lie on those seven allowed me to kind of connect with this person in a different way and have a different type of conversation than the, you know, the bullshitty kind of, you know, small talk that we often go through life with. It becomes more difficult as you get older to make new friends. That doesn't mean it's impossible. You have to recognize and develop the skills to make it easier. In fact, we practice these concepts in our X-Factor Accelerator implementation sessions you'll get instant feedback to make adjustments and build these skills fast. Michael breaks down the seven archetypes of empathy he's found and what strength attaches to each one. Yeah, so we've got these seven and we really think about it that we are all all seven just in inequally distributed ways, right? So I've got some strengths, I've got some weaknesses mm-hmm. um, and everything in between. So the, the seven are, and, uh, and there's an archetype and a behavior that attaches to it. So the first one is the convener, right? And the convener's behavior is to know how to hold space, to create an environment where people feel comfortable. And when conveners do that and people come into that space, they're more apt to share. They're more apt to tell you how they feel. They're more apt to kind of drop into a state of comfort. And that's how conveners gain empathy, right? That's how they understand the folks in the room uh, or the folks in the retail store or the folks in the whatever the setting is that they've created. The seeker is daring. They're confident. They're unafraid to take risks or to pivot. They're entrepreneurial. That They know that about themselves. They know their limit. They know when they're pushing up against that limit. They know what it feels like to like take the one big step beyond that and to learn and grow. And they know what it feels like when other people are pushing up against that and they can use that insight to help them move along. The alchemist is an experimenter. They're a tweaker of the formula. They're a prototyper. It's actually one of my least natural ways of being. And I've spent a lot of time with with that archetype in particular, trying to improve my deftness with that. Uh, The confidant is a listener. They know how to really listen to hear you. They're not listening, planning what they want to say, which is what most people do, but they're actually like <laughs> listening to genuinely hear what you have to say. The inquirer is a deep question asker. They know how to ask the, the real question under the superficial one to get to the, the, the heart of the matter. The cultivator is a big picture person. They see the, the big goal. The, I think of them sometimes like a, like a farmer. A farmer doesn't plant a seed and expect to sow it tomorrow. Right, they know it's going to take tending, and it's going to take water, and it's going to take fertilizing, and eventually this thing will come. And knowing that big picture and being inspired by that motivates them, but it also helps them bring that into the present, so that other people can connect with that and understand it as well. And then the last one's the sage, and the sage is about being present. Uh, they don't come into the room thinking about what they did five minutes ago, nor are they sitting in the room thinking about what they're going to do next. They just have the capacity to really hold space and be in a space with a person. And in so doing, that presence creates a sense of connection that allows them to understand folks better. How do you train your empathy? Find your archetype and how are you playing to your strengths? 
Our implementation sessions are designed for you to explore your strengths and weaknesses and develop the skills that you can leverage in your life. We start with uh, using the archetypes. We start with having you just self-identify. Where are your strengths and weaknesses? It's super easy, right? It's, 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 I, I jokingly refer to it sometimes as like the gateway drug for empathy, right? Just, just start with that. Can you look at these seven archetypes and say, what's the one or two that for me, I just innately naturally feel good at? And there will, for everyone, be one of those. I, I've not met a person yet and if and if you're one of those people who is saying I'm not any of those, you're being hard on yourself. I guarantee you. <laughs> I guarantee you. There's one that is more prominent than the well, other. They're going to find you on social yeah. media. And they'll, they'll prove it to you. <laughs> It'll at least be more prominent than the other ones. Let's put it that way. But being able so on a on a team, what we ask our team to do is to figure out where do you, where do your strengths lie, and how are you playing to them. Right, because you might actually find that you're a great convener, and you haven't been doing anything right. that is sort of touching on that. But like you, you know, you you've actually been really trying to you know write great questions, but you're a terrible inquirer, right? So let's figure out where our strengths and weaknesses lie, and then let's play to our strengths and work on improving our weaknesses, and just do it for yourself to start. No one understands you better than you, right? right? So start with understanding you more fully and taking that understanding to other people. And people pick up on it too. When when someone goes through this work and starts to realize that they are more aware of themselves, people will ask, what are you doing? Why, why are you like, you, you seem different lately or like there's more confidence yeah. <laughs> in you or there's more this or there's more that. And that's because they've, they've switched in, they've clicked into something different inside themselves. And that will then open the door for them to have a conversation with someone else. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. 
Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now, Rick Hansen joins us to share how to develop a strong and confident brain. I mean a brain, first of all, that is resilient and knows that it's resilient from the inside out. So things happen and they're unpleasant. We feel, um, I'm not talking about positive thinking here. I don't believe in positive thinking. You know, I believe in realistic thinking. You want to see the whole mosaic of reality. But you basically can bounce back and move forward from things that are hard. So building up resilience over time. And there are things to do to do that. Second, uh, mindfulness. If you're not aware of what you're experiencing inside and you're not really aware of the outer world, of course you're not going to have confidence because you're not tuned into what's really, really going on. And then third thing I would just say is to repeatedly take in the good, I call it, repeatedly technical language, deliberately internalize beneficial experiences so that you gradually over time based on the saying of what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, fancy language alert, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. So by repeatedly extending your beneficial experiences, regular mild ones in everyday life that are useful to you, you gradually hardwire uh, these critical uh, inner strengths, mental resources into yourself so that increasingly you feel confident instead of insecure. You feel uh, strong instead of anxious. You know, you feel grateful instead of kind of despairing and depressed. And any single time you take in the good, you know, any single time you use my methods to really help your good experiences land and sink in, it's not going to be a transformative white light moment. I'm a very realistic work ethic, you know, blue collar work ethic kind of guy. You got to do the work. But it's enjoyable work half a dozen times a day to let your uh, beneficial experiences really land, especially the ones that relate to what you're working on inside yourself. If you're working for, on, for example, building a confident brain, then when you have those moments with other people, especially high value moments, high impact moments, let's say you're trying to date and you have those moments with women where you feel liked or because they do like you or they do find you appealing. It doesn't mean they necessarily want to marry you and run away to the Bahamas with you. But yeah, that's good. You know, you're on at least the third rung of the ladder and it feels good. Don't waste those moments. You know, let them sink in, protect them, stay with them rather than do what most people routinely do, which is to quickly move on to the next thing or, you know, say yes, but inside their own head or not even notice them in the first place when there's actually a factual uh, based opportunity 
to have a critically important experience for yourself. Rick shares how the brain actually learns, installing the experience we had to turn it from brain state to brain trait. How do you change for the better? How does that actually happen? Well, in terms of the brain, it's a two-stage process that goes from state to trait. In other words, you have to have an experience in the first place. We don't have brains or technology these days that's like iPods or like, you know, Neo in the Matrix where you plug a cable in and suddenly you know Kung Fu, right? No, we have to have an experience in the first place that's beneficial. But then really important, we need to install that activated experience in the brain or it's only momentarily beneficial or pleasant. It has no zero, no lasting value if we don't encode it in some way as a lasting change in neural structure or function. So what I'm talking about here is the fundamental technology deep in yourself of changing yourself for the better over time. And most of the experiences that we are going to wire into ourselves, we're going to, you know, suck them in and make them part of ourselves. They're usually mildly pleasant, but they're richer than that. They're, like you say, they're a moment of courage. They're a moment of connection. They're a moment of accomplishment. They're a moment of getting through a tough workout and knowing that you can survive the pain, you know, of that last rep. You know, it's a moment of registering that, you know, this kind of person, even though she's really attractive, is never going to be the kind of person that's going to really meet your needs deep down long term, right? Any kind of learning. It's really helping learning lamp. And I, the way I kind of think about it is like, what's the rate of return on your savings account or investment on any day? Right. And the difference between, you know, 5% and 4% or 10% and 9% is not very much on a given day, but gradually accumulating over time and compounding that little extra is going to make a big difference over time. I would say to people or ask people is what's your average learning rate per day from your ordinary beneficial experiences? How many of them actually sink in? to make you a little bit happier, a little bit wiser, a little bit tougher, and a little bit more loving at the end of the day than you were at the start of the day. And that is, to me, a profoundly powerful question for anyone, but especially for people who are wanting to grow and develop, and especially for people, who, as many people do these days, who feel kind of pushed around by massive external forces, the economy, politics, whatever, and also kind of pushed around by the reactions still inside their own head. When you start doing what I'm describing, you know, you kind of go through your day like you got a vacuum cleaner, hoovering up those ordinary little jewels, those ordinary little opportunities for learning and growth. Uh, it changes how you see your life entirely. Instead of feeling, you know, like a nail kind of pushed on by powerful forces, you start feeling like a hammer from the inside out, inside your own head, you know, changing yourself for the better uh, every day. Learning from your experiences is what makes you grow. Don't take those teachable moments for granted. This is why we encourage our clients and listeners to journal and to share their discoveries in our implementation sessions. Now, it's so important to look for little moments of connection during the day. Try to stay in that moment for half a minute and let it sink in. Don't dismiss it you'll notice your brain neurons start firing together. Now, this is not something you made up or wish it were so, but based on something that really happened in your life, as Rick explains. Just think about a typical day. You get up, you, you move through your day, you start encountering other people. So in my larger framework, you know, which is based on how your brain evolved through its, essentially, its lizard, mouse, and monkey stages, you know, reptilian brainstem, 
mammalian subcortex, primate human cortex, lizard, mouse, and monkey. That has to do with how the brain goes about meeting our basic needs. We have three basic needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection. Almost everything you can think of falls into one of those three buckets. And in terms of connection, you know, which is what basically we're talking about here, um, how to, you know, build up resources inside so you can actually be more successful in connecting with other people and connecting with the kind of people and in the kind of ways that you really, really want to do that. Okay, so in terms of that, let's say you go through your day looking for little jewels of connection, little opportunities that are real, where, you know, something real has happened that can build up a sense of feeling cared about by other people, feeling attractive, feeling uh, respected, feeling resilient, feeling like, you know, you are a catch, right? How do you build up that sense? Well, look for opportunities to have that experience, right? And little ones. So you walk through your day, you know, you make eye contact with some, let's say a woman walking down the street. It's a little moment. It's nice. There's a little connection there. You feel connected. You feel validated. You don't feel scorned. Don't waste it. Stay with it. Open to it. Receive it. Maybe you have some friends, you know, you're hanging with them and they like you. They think you're a good guy. Don't waste that. Stay with it. Feel it. Let it sink in. Open to it in your body. The longer those neurons are firing together, the more they're going to be wiring together. Deep down in the basement of the brain is pretty mechanistic, which I find really, really helpful. You don't have to do some kind of, you know, or have some white light experience. Just stay with it. It doesn't seconds in a row, it's going to naturally start encoding and getting wired into your body. And I've had the experience many, many times with people and I've run a, I created a training on this and we ran a study on it through UC Berkeley and we got very positive results. The people quite quickly start experiencing something different is happening when they just take half a dozen or a dozen times a day, usually less than half a minute at a time, to really register beneficial experiences and to stay with them, you know, a dozen seconds or so, so they can really, really sink in. What makes it cool is that these experiences are real in your everyday life. You know, you're with someone and they, they include you. They think you're cool or, you know, your best friend's wife, just really from her heart, she looks at you and you, and you know she's telling the truth when she says, dude, you're fine as is. Or let's say you worry about something. Maybe you're going bald, you know? And she looks at you and she says, buddy, nobody cares. Women don't care about that stuff. They just don't. Instead of having it brush off yourself, like, you know, Teflon, right? Don't waste that. And I got to say, just to wrap here, I see all kinds of people. It's so interesting. They want to get good at lots of stuff. Okay. They want to get good at operating Excel or their, you know, Snapchat account or what have you, but they don't take on getting good at getting good. They don't take on how do you change your brain and therefore your life for the better over time? How do you get, how do you learn how to learn? You know, cause that's what we all want to do. We're all developing, but we rarely spend a minute thinking about, wow, how does development actually occur? And that's the secret sauce, meta learning. You know, learning how to learn. That's the X factor where suddenly every day is full of little real opportunities to turbocharge and steepen your learning curve, you know, as you go through life. Now, we want to treat developing empathy like a work task, as Michael Ventura explains. For sure. And that's and that's why treating it like a 
piece of work for yourself that you're committing to and you're saying, yeah, I'm going to spend the next whatever it is, couple weeks, really having a, a sense of awareness for this is going to help you start to train your brain to put yourself into that mindset more often. I had a teacher I talk about this in the book a little bit, but I had a teacher who was helping teach me presence and particularly the the sage like behavior. And uh, he said, "Michael, are you left handed or right handed?" I said, "Right handed." And he's we're just (laughs) and so I said, "I'm right handed." And he said, "Okay, well, I want you to open every door you go through for the next week with your left hand." Mm -hmm. I said, "That's the easiest thing ever. I'm going to nail that." Oh yeah, right. And walking out of his office, I opened the door with my right hand, and I was like, "Oh shit, this is going to be harder than I thought." Well, as soon as I read that, I was like, "I got to give this a try," and I failed miserably. And it took me putting post-it notes on my on the doors in my apartment to remind me to do it with my left hand. But how much effort it took and and to enable that was it was difficult. Yeah, it's it's an untraining before it's a training. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then I love the best part. He goes, "Okay, now go back to yeah." Once once I got (laughs) comfortable, I was like, "Oh, I nailed it, Gil. This is going to be great." What do I do now? He goes, "Now switch back." Oh, I remember that story, and it's part of my learning process to this day. If you want to change your behaviors, you must turn on your consciousness at choice point moments. Now, Michael explains how we can use empathy in teams. In fact, which archetypes are you currently lacking? And what I've seen from teams when when a team, and going to your point earlier, like you don't need to be in the C-suite to be doing this. You could be the most junior person on a team. Just start by looking for where the gaps are, right? Like, are we not being inquisitive enough? Are we not listening enough? Are we not thinking about the environment we're creating for people enough? Whatever it is, right? Just be be the have the best question. Don't worry about having the best answer, right? And I think that that often that 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 introspection or that that uh, that sense of inquiry that comes from uh, just trying to get a little objectivity on how a team works or how a problem is getting solved often helps like open the the door a bit more for for this kind of conversation to occur. And these next couple of clips, Michael Ventura explains how to use empathy in larger groups or when you're in a group and someone makes an inappropriate joke. You need to stand up for what you believe or how to show empathy when you are in the outgroup. You have the benefit of fresh eyes. There are two anecdotes I'll give you on this. One is we had an interesting conversation about probably about 10 months ago now with uh, a woman who runs um, some of the training at the State Department. And she right. said, we're in a weird spot because we still have to train ambassadors to go out into foreign countries and run our different outposts. And uh, and we're living in a climate where we're not always very welcome. And so sure. how do we bring empathy into the training process for these folks so that when they get to a post, they know how to think and how to gather insight from the local community and engender a sense of connection? Because um, if they come in on the headlines that everyone's reading, it's a pretty steep uphill battle to to win the hearts and minds of folks somewhere in a far-flung corner of the world. But if you are trained to say, yes, this is one side of the story, but I'm also here to understand what your side of the story is and help me understand what what how we can play a role in your community and so on and so forth, things will shift, right? So that was an interesting area where I was I was heartened to know that that the State Department is thinking that way and, and caring about that. Another area where we're looking at this right now is um, we're doing some work with the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm-hmm. And one of the particular areas they've asked us to look at is what they call everyday hate. 
right? So this isn't the tiki tortures and and stuff like that. Like in many ways, like that is that is a hard empathy bridge to build. It can be done, I'm sure, and 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 God willing, it will happen. But like that is difficult. But what they want to really focus in on combating, in, in addition to that, is what they term everyday hate. So like the off color comment that. You know, if you just sat down at a dinner table with six people and you don't know one of the people at the table and the meal just gets put on the table and someone says something off color, are you the kind of person who is like, well, I don't want to ruin this for everybody and I don't need to make a big thing about it. And maybe it was said in, you know, in poor taste, but like, oh, it's okay. And you have this internal monologue that rationalizes that you won't do something about it. And we've all been there. We've all had those situations. What we're working to try to do now is to help build a training program and, a, and raise the awareness of that is the moment where you have to draw a line, where you have to actually say, you know what, with all due respect, like that that doesn't make me comfortable, and here's why, you know, or whatever you need to do to address it, because I do think that it is hard to blanketly say, you know, okay, for this large group, here's how we're going to understand them. It, it does take one one to one hand to hand combat sometimes to right. make those changes. But small shifts make a big difference, right? And those little standing up for your integrity and what you feel is right uh, or what you feel is right for someone else can sometimes shift things. One of the simplest ways that uh, that we've seen success emerge is almost treat it like you're like Jane Goodall. And you're like, like you're like you're looking at the apes and you're really trying to like understand like the behaviors and 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 be Except that your 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 distance from the group may actually be a benefit for a period of time. There's a thing we do at Subrosa called Fresh Eyes, which is that for the first six months you work with us, we have a meeting where we want to talk with you and understand what do we do that we're blind to, right? Because after six months, you don't have fresh eyes anymore. Right. You, you've drank the Kool-Aid, you're part <laughs> of us, so you're not going to see these things anymore. And so the same is true in those settings. You have You have the benefit of fresh eyes by being an outsider. Don't begrudge it, but actually embrace it as an opportunity to ask probing questions and say, hey, I I know I'm not part of this program or I haven't been here as long as you guys, or maybe we don't see eye to eye on this. Can you explain to me why we do fill in the blank? Or like, why is it that, you know, and, and, and asking it in a benign form of a question really lets people have to own up to why they do something a certain way, or they may acknowledge well, actually, we don't know why we do it that way, right? right? Which is which is often sometimes the case too. Yeah, I feel like a, a lot of times these things are passed down traditionally yep. without the reasoning behind them. Oh, well, because we did it last week and we've been doing it for two years. But that's right. Everyone's lost the context as to why. Yeah, there's a great case study. I, I feel like it was based on, um, I feel like it was a Kodak case study that I read years ago that there was some issue that they were getting behind in their payments to vendors and they didn't know why and they didn't know why. And Kodak was an enormous company at this point, if it was Kodak. And someone eventually brought in an external firm to say, what's going on? Why are, why is our process so screwed up? And well, we only cut checks on Tuesdays. Why do we only cut checks on Tuesdays? We're multinational. Um, and as they do the digging, <laughs> they realized that in the company's formative years, they had a part-time bookkeeper who only came on Tuesdays. And so checks <laughs> got cut on Tuesday. And that became canon for the organization as opposed to evolving uh, the process. And we probably have a million checks we cut on Tuesdays, things that sit inside all of our organizations that we don't know why we do them. And now it's time to start questioning them. Now, every leader must bring empathy to companies. In fact, it has to be on your tool belt, as Michael explains. 
when I come into an organization and I say, and they say, tell us about your business. And one of the first things we say is, well, we work in this design thinking approach called applied empathy. The, you know, the eyebrows raise almost immediately <laughs> and people are like, what are these hippies talking about? But what's interesting is some of the most switched on organizations that have accepted this and actually really not even accepted, but embraced it have been some of the less expected suspects, right? So one of them is West Point. Mm -hmm. And so we've been working with the military academy for over a year now. And the superintendent of that school, who's a three-star general, he's a career military guy, um, you know, as crisp and as sharp of a thinker and a, and a, and a strategic person as I've ever met. And when I first met him and we started talking about what we do, and you know, I've got long hair and a beard and I'm talking about empathy on the campus. And you know, it's, 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 it, I, I'm a sight to behold as I walk around there sometimes <laughs> for sure. My ID is checked multiple times. But, uh, <laughs> but the, the soup said to me, empathy is the number one skill any leader who leaves here with needs to have in their tool set. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and that accolade or that acknowledgement from someone like, him was something that I have been able to use in conversations with other organizations. You know, I can sit across the table from you know a Fortune 10 company CEO and say, look, if you don't think empathy is going to be important to your business, answer this question to me. How well do you understand your consumers? And you know, they'll usually say they have some sense of their consumer and they'll they'll talk about what it is. And I say, okay, um, what about your other consumers? And I say, well, what other consumers? And I said, well, you just described your end consumer, right? But there's probably 15 different end consumers if we're being honest, right? Because they all kind of break down into subsegments. But then you also have your employees who consume content and information from you every day and 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 consume the culture that you that you perpetuate inside this organization. You've got shareholders, you've got the media, you've got potential new employees that you want to recruit away from someone else to come work here. All of those are your consumers. And are you really thinking and do you really put make the effort to understand them and all of their disparate needs and then back that into strategy that you're building for the business. And then you usually you can like hear the crickets in the room because it goes quiet for a moment and then people are like, "Okay, yeah, this is actually something that is not as woo-woo as I thought. There's going to be some real, some real heavy insight work that's going to come sure. along with this. And you know, I will say, like I said earlier, it takes a little while. It's usually slower before you pick up pace with this because you, it does take more work to go gather that information and bring it into the process. But the companies that have been doing it with us for over a few months start to see everything shift, not just the bottom line, which does happen, but also the employee retention changes and company satisfaction uh, you know employee satisfaction is on the rise and even uh, you know you can look at uh, a drop in complaints to HR because people are handling their Which conversations amazing, yeah. with people better right so there's all these knock-on effects Paul joins us to explain how empathy works when a person has bad luck it doesn't work when the person wins the lottery and then gets promoted instead of you so Adam Smith talks about empathy he calls it sympathy but empathy in the course of intimate relationships and um he is such a smart guy. He's this uh, kind of repressed Scotsman, and um, I'm kind of a repressed Canadian. So, so I have this sort of chemistry with Adam Smith. And he says, sometimes you can absorb the pleasure of somebody else. If it's your kid, if it's somebody you love. But a lot of times, somebody comes up to you and says, you know, great news. I got the promotion you always wanted. You know, if it's zero sum, their pleasure will not creep up to you, while their sadness might. Adam Smith advises somebody with real good news. And you have real good news, you want to tell your friends to tone it down a bit. Because 
there's always social comparison. Empathy is always sort of tainted by envy. I mean, if you have, if you have good news for a friend and you want your friend to really be happy for you, maybe temper it somewhat. And it depends on your nature, on the nature of your relationship with your friend. But Smith's, Adam Smith's insight, and this is like in the 1750s, and he would have never put it this way, but is that we're primates. We're hierarchical social creatures. And so whenever we hear some news, we can't help but ask the question, where does this put me? Where do I fall on the ladder? If Bill Gates makes more money, that's fine. That's not going to affect me one way or another. But if my office mate gets a big raise or a big demotion, that affects me. And it's very human to think in terms of that way. The moral isn't that we can never feel happy for our friends. Of course, we feel happy for our friends all the time. It's that when their success connects with where we stand in the world, that makes it more difficult. And on the flip side, to the extent we could take them and put them into our in-group, our category, make their victory our victory, then we could enjoy it wholeheartedly. Social psychologists call this a Berg, B-I-R-G, basking in reflected glory. So this guy down the street from me, like 10 houses, got the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. And I'm thinking, cool, it's like my accomplishment too, because he lives next to me. So we um we can do that. Certainly, it's something great happens to my kid. That's a no-brain. That's easy. Because my sure. kid is me and I'm my kid. And so it reflects. It's with friends. It's just, again, it's not that you can't do it. It's that it's complicated. Before you can have empathy for others, you must first have an understanding of yourself. In this next clip, Michael Ventura tells a story of a physical injury to make his point. That foundation is so critical because if we immediately leap to trying to understand everyone else but don't know where we're leaping from, uh, it, it makes it quite difficult. you know. And, and I had a personal journey getting to this thought myself, which was, you know, when, when but pre-empathy being a thing for Subrosa, when I had first started the business, the stress of that was significant. And I would walk in the door at 24 years old, 25 years old, and see a group of 50 people who I was responsible for. I had to make sure that if I did not close that deal, if I did not manage the business the right way, if I did not, did not, did not, they can't pay their rent. They right. can't pick up groceries tonight. You know, I'm I'm responsible for these people, and that, or at least that's what I felt at the time. Um, I've since gotten a little more distance from that, but at the time it really was crippling. And uh, one day I was changing the water cooler in the office, and the next thing I remember, I just like went white, and I woke up, and I was on the floor, and the thing was you know glug 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 water all over me, and uh, I had herniated a couple discs in my back, and and literally couldn't walk. And when I went to the hospital. Their recommendation was, you know, we're going to put rods in your back. We're going to fuse your discs. It's going to be this whole procedure. You'll have arthritic pain the rest of your life, but like you'll be able to walk. Nothing anyone wants to hear. No bueno. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, uh, I kind of left in sort of a huff. I, I would say is probably a mild way of putting it. But um, but I and got, you were a, a young man. Yeah, twenty five. Yeah. And I got a walker and I left. <laughs> And yeah, uh, that's, that's, and it was miserable. And uh, and a friend of mine said, "You should try acupuncture. I don't think it's going to fix everything, but before you go get under the knife, see what happens." And so I went, and it was the first time I'd ever had an alternative medicine uh, treatment of any kind. And if I went in and my pain was at a hundred, I left at ninety nine. I didn't leave at like fifty, right? Like it didn't change me overnight. But I saw a crack in the door, and I went back again, and then I went back again, and then after like the fourth or fifth time, the acupuncturist said to me, "So what do you do to manage your stress?" And I, my 
only answers were drink and yeah. do drugs. It's the and, American way. Yeah, right? like, <laughs> and like, I just, I didn't have a good clean answer to that. And he said, well, your back issue isn't really a back issue. It's a stress issue in my opinion. And that I think if you can learn how to manage your stress better and, and comport yourself in a different way, a lot of that pressure you're putting on your shoulders and metaphorically on your back will start to lessen. And so fast forward, you know, nine months of that and Tai Chi and finding some meditation that worked for me and this and that. And I had no back pain and I had no surgery. And I was able to manage my physical body by managing my interior body a bit more. And that led you down the empathy pathway. Yeah, exactly. It, sh- it showed me that if we don't have that internal foundation and understanding for what's actually going on inside us, there's no way we're going to be of service to someone else. And so that empathy for me, which sometimes like psychologists I've talked to have said, like, you can't have empathy for yourself. You can only have empathy for other people. And like, yes, I guess I'm sure technically that's true, but you can have understanding for facets of yourself, right? And this was a facet of me that I didn't understand, that I was blind to until a physical injury made me pay attention to it. Now we recognize that empathy can be cultivated and Michael shares how. I do a, a check-in for myself every morning as part of a, a larger like Tai Chi and other things that I like to do for my physical body. But um, I do a, a, probably about a 15-minute check-in in the morning with myself to just sort of get a sense of how am I feeling? Where's my energy level today? Is there something that's nagging at me that I haven't addressed because I don't want to? Which is you know sometimes the way things go, right? It's like, oh, there's that thing. I don't want to send that email about that thing. But like today's the day you got to send that goddamn email, man, and like get it over with and just like make sure you you know you get that that monkey off your back. And so I think about those types of things and then I but I attach them to actions, right? Like even if the action is I'm not going to do something about it today. That's an okay action, but right. I've, I've decided to I'm not ignoring it. I've made it conscious it's a choice. decision, yes. Yeah. And so I think that's a that's an easy first one um because we all can do it and I had a during my learning of Tai Chi, I went to my uh, Tai Chi master, Master Ru, who's got a shout out in the book. He's an amazing man. I said to him, you know, Master Ru, I, I love Tai Chi. It does so much for me, but I just, I don't have the time. I can't do it every day. And he said, wake up earlier. And then he just walked yeah. away. And I was, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. So for those of you who are hearing this and like, I don't have 15 minutes in the morning to to check in with myself. If you can't give yourself 15 minutes for yourself and your own personal development and your own sanity sometimes, then maybe you should think about your priorities a bit more because 15 minutes isn't that much. If you feel you're robotic or have been told that you seem stiff, your empathy will make people not only more comfortable around you, but will seek you out. This is why it is important to develop. Regardless of how much you think you exude, work on developing it as a tool. Now, this is one of the many tools in our X-Factor Accelerator Toolkit that we spend time helping you develop. We've understood its power from the beginning of our work, and that's why we spend so much time discussing it on this show. All right, this week's shout-out goes to David. And, well, I'm going to let David tell you for himself. Hi, my name is Dave, and I am a senior software engineer. Art of Charm has helped me advance my career because it gave me the confidence and permission to go out and interview Within four years of taking the program, I, no joke, 3x my salary. My favorite AOC concept was that I can build my own belief system. I am not tied to the negative doubt and self-talk that was in my head. I can push forward with who I wanted to be. To anybody thinking about joining, I'd say you won't regret it. Just do it. Trust the process, and you'll have the life that you deserve. Thank you, David. And it's been an honor and a pleasure to work with you over the years. 
Now, if you've listened this far, my guess is because you want more out of life and to finally succeed at work, love, and life. And if that's the case, then join us, the Art of Charm team, and hundreds of other people just like you who are experiencing breakthrough conversations, supercharging their confidence, and growing an incredible network inside our world-famous X-Factor Accelerator program. The X Factor Accelerator is where high-achieving, like-minded people meet, strategize, and unlock their hidden X Factor to make sure they get the most out of life's opportunities and finally unlock those doors keeping you from success. Weekly implementation sessions with opportunities to practice your conversation skills, rapport building, supercharge your charisma through powerful communication, and unlock the charm to attract the right people in your life. Imagine what you can accomplish with coaching and mentorship from the Art of Charm. What are you waiting for? Join us today at unlockyourxfactor.com. Now, before we head out, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a huge favor? Head on over to your favorite podcast player and rate and review the show. It'll mean the world to us and it lets others find the show. And before we head out, a huge thank you to our producers, Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. All right, everybody, go out there and have a wonderful week.